Here we go, rejecting the screen. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Out West is Adam Stanko. And our guest today, Rex Walters, 16th overall pick in 1993 out of Kansas by the New Jersey Nets. Spent seven years in the league with the Nets, Sixers, Heat. Went overseas also. Was a head coach in college at FAU and the University of San Francisco, the WCC Coach of the Year in 2014. An assistant coach in the pros with the Pistons. He was a head coach in the G League. And he's currently an assistant coach under Danny Manning at Wake Forest. Rex, we're going to get to blue chips. But let's start with growing up playing hoops. Why didn't your junior high coach, your high school coach, why didn't those guys think that you could play at each of the next levels? It's a complicated story. First of all, I was a kid with my hair on fire, number one. So my my eighth grade coach was also my sixth grade coach. Okay, I played up a year in sixth grade. Well, in seventh grade, we played against his team because he always coached the eighth graders. And basically, we were better than the eighth graders, in my opinion. He was not calling any calls. And, and, and if you know anything about me, you know I had issues with referees, both as a player and as a coach. <laughs> so I called him on I called him on it. He didn't like the way I called him on it, especially with some of the language I chose to use. And at that point, I think uh, uh, he had reservations about giving me high recommendations <laughs> as a high school player. So um, that's, that's the PG or G-rated version of, of probably why he didn't think I was going to make it very far. So then how did your recruitment go without the help of those coaches? Well, you know, back then it was, it was public high school. So, you know, I basically had a choice between one or two schools. Uh, I was going to go to a school that was closer. I went there, and it's, it's, it's funny, it's the same thing in high school. My high school coach was talking to me about, hey, there's some really good junior colleges that you should look into. You know, I, let's be honest, I was 6'3", skinny, white. I didn't fit the, the you know, the, the, the resume or whatever in terms of what a guy is supposed to look like, what a guy is supposed to act like. Um, so it was pretty easy for him to say, Hey, he's probably, this guy's probably not going to make it. And so that, that just gave me a great edge, right? That just put a big chip on my shoulder to try to prove people wrong. And obviously that, that held true for a long time. So it is what it is. What it is. I, I still use it as a, as a uh, rallying cry for me internally to try to prove people wrong. You're at Northwestern for two years and you decide to, to leave the school you end up transferring to Kansas, which obviously people remember. I mean, you're one of the most famous transfers in, in college basketball history because you eventually led Kansas to a Final Four. But the Chicago Tribune actually had a headline at the time. It said, Walters quitting North, Northwestern. What, what was that like for you emotionally as, as people, Dick Vitale was saying stuff, stuff's written about. What was it like emotionally as, as people, again, were sort of knocking the way you went about your, your transfer? Well, as a, as a 50-year-old man, I have to kind of look at myself and say, what in the heck did you do to rub people the wrong way? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard. Like, I'm sitting there, uh, shoot, watching a Northwestern game after having transferred. I'm actually sitting there with my father because I think it's around Christmas time or we're on a break and I'm back in California. And then all of a sudden my picture shows up in, an, in a Northwestern ESPN game and Dick Vitale is just killing me. Like me and the, and the other three guys that all decided to transfer, we're all in the same recruiting class. Yep, and it said yep. turncoats. It said turncoats on it. And I'm sitting there with my dad and I'm like, my dad's got to look at that right now. I'm on national TV, right? I'm not playing. 
and this guy is calling me a turncoat. So again, it, it just can't, it went back to fuel for the fire, you know, fuel for the fire. Uh, they, you know, I, I did say I was semi misquote. I want to sound like Charles Barkley and say I was misquoted in my own book, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I, I did say I wanted to go closer to home. I was like, I was going to go back home. I was going to go back to either Santa Clara or maybe USF, but then Kansas was interested. So when they asked me, like, you know, I thought you said you wanted to go home. I said, well, hey, look, look at the map. Kansas is actually still closer to home. <laughs> that's why, you know, that's why I did that. But yeah, it, it, I got I got some heat for it. it. It worked out really good. I know that we tend to have a transfer problem in college basketball nowadays. Um, you know, my whole thing was I want to have a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. I want to I want to you know compete on a national level. And I had great teammates at Northwestern, some great guys that I still talk to, but Northwestern wasn't the right place for me. All right, so let's talk about that Kansas career. So when you go, your transfer season is when Kansas loses to Duke in the national title game in 91. And then in 92, win the Big Eight, you're the number one seed in the Midwest, lose round two, get upset by UTEP. Can you take us back into the locker room? Do you remember it? I, I do. Can you guys hear me okay? I, I do remember it. I remember it like it's yesterday because we were really good. I thought that was a team that would win a national championship. And that's the first team. I mean, obviously, we all know about the, you know, the great, the great coaching of, of, um, you know, the UTEP organization, the UTEP and Texas Western turned to UTEP, and, and they did a number on us. They, they spread us out. They drove us. They, they knew exactly how to attack us. And I was just in shock because, you know, you get to sit and watch a national championship game the year before in Indianapolis. Uh, you think, okay, well, next year we're going to be even better because I'm playing, you know, and, and I'm going to be there and we're going to take this thing to the next level. So it was it was a really hard two weeks. I mean, forget about the locker room. I'm in tears. I can't look at nobody. I can't talk to nobody. Um, everything's a blur. To this day, when I hear, you know, the, the city Dayton, I, I, I still get a little jittery because that was a team that could win a national championship. You know, and, and uh, so uh, it, it, that's not a great memory, and I feel awful about it to this day. I thought I feel like I let Coach Williams down. I let my teammates down. I didn't have a great game. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, it's, I survived, and it gave me a, a, another reason to try to do everything I could to get back the next year. Did you ever rewatch it? I, I have not watched it, no. I, we have a highlight tape from, 19, you know, from my 1992 highlight tape of Kansas basketball. I watched – it's about 35 minutes long. I watched 30 minutes of it, and I turn it off. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to watch that game, any part of that game, to be honest with you. Uh, Rex, you've already alluded to, to your competitiveness, and obviously it was ramped up when you were, when you were playing at Kansas. So I'm, I'm curious. I read this quote about you from uh, Adonis Jordan who said, I'll see some guy on another team start talking back to Rex and I'll say to him, don't you get Rex started. It's like the Incredible Hulk. Don't make him mad. I've seen him just go crazy out there. So how competitive were you at that time? Yeah, I mean, and I was in college basketball is different in the NBA. There's much better players in the NBA, but, but I'll say this. Uh, I, I, was, I was very confident in my abilities, but again, when you have a Junior high coach say you're not going to make it. When you have a high school coach say you're not going to make it. Mm -hmm. When your own coach, and Coach Williams told me after our first practice when I got there, if you don't play defense, you're never going to play here. All that stuff's kind of built up, right? So if someone tries to question 
uh, my ability at that time, it, it was, it was like me going crazy and not only trying to give it to you, but making sure I, I would try to crush you, you know, with my words. And at the, in college, I was, I was pretty good. I was, I was able to do that a lot of times. So that just really uh, took me to a whole nother level. Uh, coach would, coach Williams would have a tough time controlling me. My teammates would have a tough time controlling me in terms of not just how I performed, but how much I was going to talk. Okay, so to explain that to us, what what were you saying? I'm the baddest white boy in America. Um, you have no idea what this dude's about to do to you. Um, it just uh, you, yeah, it just got crazy. Okay, it just got crazy. Like literally, I'm going to embarrass you tonight. You have no idea what you've just done. Um, in the middle of shots, in the middle of drives, I'm letting them know way too fast for you too quick are you serious are you really going to let me do this to you i mean that's the kind of stuff that you were going to hear from me and it was it was just enough that the referee could kind of hear it but not so loud that that he could tee me up but there was a few times they had to separate me from guys did it ever get you punched uh you know By- byron houston so so here's a, here's a good so we have a thing called secondary break in kansas and and so on a free throw break, you're supposed to run it down and out, right? Well, mm-hmm. a guy that's guarding me kind of clips me with his forearm on a, on, a, on a clear out. And so on the on the very next play, there's a foul. We're getting running on a free throw break. And so I'm supposed to run it down and out. Instead, I run it down and in. And, I, and for some reason, my elbow went right into his gut. <laughs> okay, so, so, yeah, it got dirty. I mean, it would get dirty. I, I would... I would have coaches, Norm Stewart would be yelling at me, Eddie Sutton, you know, you know, congratulations on the Hall of Fame, you know, would be yelling at me because it would, it would cross the line in terms of what was necessarily legal, you know. And then Byron Houston, the very next play after that, picks me up and throws me. And I was a tough guy, but Byron Houston was a whole nother level in terms of physicality and toughness. I wasn't necessarily going to fight him. I, I kind of knew what battles to pick. But, um, yeah, it, there, there were times. There were times when the lines were crossed. So, Noah, more more from Rex in a, in a moment. But as we've talked about a, a lot on this podcast, you know I now have four children. Incredible. So between taking care of everything they need and we're dealing with the pandemic, sometimes you need someone else to take care of your food for you. That's where Postmates comes in. It's been huge for us as we're dealing with all these issues and just trying to figure out where do we find the time? Even though we're home, you would imagine that we'd have some. Here's the thing I just recently discovered. Not just burgers or sushi. Postmates does grocery delivery. Who doesn't need that right now? And they do deliveries for convenience stores, clothing stores. Basically help getting whatever you need. But the best part of Postmates, for a limited time, they're giving our listeners, yes, you, listening to Rejecting the Screen right now, $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, just download the app and use code LOCKEDONNBA. That's code LOCKEDONNBA for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. What was that first border war experience like? It, it, it's just an all-out war is what it is. Physically um 
emotionally, like you have high, you know, Corey Williams was a high-level player that played in the NBA, won a ring with the Bulls, Byron Houston, Randy Rutherford, and just physical, like like really, like you felt everything. People were in you. The referees, there, there's just no way that they could manage that type of game. There's going to be blood on the floor in those type of games, and you're just going to have to – it just comes down to who's going to be tougher on that particular night. And, and uh, we were fortunate to come out ahead at quite a few of those times, but they got us at their place. I remember my junior year, and, and it was going to be a war. And, and, and even – I remember this to this day. So we, we beat them my senior year. Of course, I'm going to have to taunt the student section as I run by, and we still have it on tape, uh, a male cheerleader – picks up a ball and chucks it right at my head. It goes right risen past my ear. And I was like, good. You know, that means I, I really got them pissed off tonight. Rex, your, your tournament run in, in 1993, you were, you were the best player in the NCAA tournament that year. I mean, that it, it was insane. 23 against Ball State, 28 against BYU, 24 against Cal. Before uh, there was a game that you had, that Mike Francesa was talking about you and you ended up hitting this article was written about you and you ended up hitting six, three pointers, 23 points in a game. And you said, I don't think Mike Francesa has ever played ball judging by his physique. So (laughs) I'm curious what you remember about that moment as it went into the NCAA tournament. Yeah. And I I like Mike a lot. I've got a chance to get to know him. I've been on the show a few times. But, yeah, there's no question. When I, when I saw him talking about us getting upset, uh, again, I just used that as a rallying cry. But this time it wasn't, it wasn't internal, it was external, where I basically said, you know, judging on – based on what I've seen of Mike Francesca, uh, Francesca uh, he's never played basketball in life. I don't know why anyone would be listening to him. And that kind of – it rallied our team. It rallied uh, um, us as a as a group of players they they, they really loved love the fact that rex was talking trash again now he's taking on the media and i was I, I had to back it up you know when you say stuff like that you better back it up and and i appreciate you saying i, I thought i had as good of ncaa tournament in terms of efficiency as as you've seen i mean i shot 60 percent from the three-point line 60 percent from the field 90 percent from the free throw line um i i didn't know that until a few years i looked it up and i'm like Thank goodness I played that well because I was talking an awful lot. <laughs> what was that like to be in the zone at that is at that time though? It was it was for me it was like a culmination. It was probably my you know you know we talk about that one shining moment that those five games obviously we lose to Carolina but those five games I mean I was as laser focused as I've ever been and you know I've had I had some good games in the NBA uh, I had some good games when I went overseas but for for five games like. I was on fire and I was completely locked in. We lose the K-State in the Big 8 tournament and I was like, this is my last shot. And, you know, I always dreamed of playing the NBA and thought maybe I'd be good enough, but I was like, this is it. This, this is what this thing is really about for you. What are you going to do? And, and I'm like, I'm going to do what Coach Williams asked me to do because I kind of would fight it a little bit. I'll be honest with you. I'd fight him a little bit on things. And uh, I just was on fire. I, was on, I, I couldn't miss. I, I wasn't shooting a lot which still surprised me. I mean, when you shoot 60, 60% from three, you think you'd get maybe 10, 11 attempts. I was really, yeah, you really should. efficient. Yeah, yeah, right. But uh, I was really, really efficient. We're beating some good teams. And, and it's funny, I watched those games. We, we, we beat Cal at Cal. And, and my, my wife looks at me, he's like, all they're talking about is Jason Kidd. And no offense to Jason. I love Jason. He's a great player. 
But when a guy goes for 23 on eight for nine shooting and all they're talking about Jason Kidd, you know, that still kind of pisses me off a little bit. Yeah, I don't blame you. Then you and Adonis Jordan combined to go 10 for 16 from three, but just the big guys from UNC were too much. How long after that game did it take you to have a civil or, yeah, I'll say, okay, civil, civil conversation with Eric Montrose? You know, I, I see him now because he does radio for North Carolina. And, and you know, we're, the coronavirus was just starting up, so we didn't shake our hands, but we did give each other a dap. He, he was really good. Eric was a great college basketball player. We really had no answer for him. It's funny, I actually watched the game about a week ago. Uh, my oh. son was asking me about that experience, and so we watched it. And it's funny how different the game is. And, and it was three out, two in motion. There was nowhere to drive it. But uh, but North Carolina on that night, they were the better team. I hate to say it. Wait, so as as you're watching the game, were you repeating some of the trash talk as you walked as you're watching it with your son? You know, I, and I'll be honest with you. You know, I think I was so focused in the tournament. I don't even know if I was trash talking. I, I really don't. Now, if we would have played Michigan in the final, there would have been some trash talk because they had played us earlier in the season. Um, Jawan liked to talk. Chris liked to talk. Jalen liked to talk. And they were going to bring that out of me. But, but for some reason, you know, we played BYU-Cal. There was not a lot of talk being, you know, happening. Even against Indiana, we were uh, – both teams and, and every single game were really locked in. So, but Michigan would have been different. Like, those, those guys – I love Jalen, you know, nowadays. But, but we would have been talking. It would have been a wolf storm. And, and the thing about Kansas, none of our other guys really talked trash. So I felt like I had to talk trash for the entire team. Rex, where so you guys lose in the final four? I'm always curious about this. Where did you watch the national championship that year? That famous Michigan UNC game. I didn't watch it. I'll be honest. I didn't watch it. I, yeah, I didn't want to watch. I had no interest in it. You, 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 you. Obviously, I've seen stuff about it, you know, later, and I watched the Fab Five documentary and all that, and I remember there's a lot of good times that I can kind of remember. But I had no interest in watching that. I was okay. What's what's next? What am I going to be yeah. doing next? And and that's when you start getting into the blue chip stuff because all the agents were trying to help me, uh, you know, help themselves. They were trying to help me get a job mm-hmm. uh, as an actor. All right. So I, I want to talk blue chips in one moment. You guys did play Michigan in Hawaii earlier that season and, and lost to Michigan. Can you take us inside that game, what it was like being on the floor with those guys? Yeah, that, those were the two games all season where you felt their physicality as well. Like, and not, not, not now Oklahoma State was like physical, like dirty. They're going to hit you. Michigan and Carolina, especially Michigan, you also felt an unbelievable athleticism, uh, an unbelievable like speed and quickness, as well as the physicality, uh, which was something different for us. Um, so, you know, a lot of trash talking going on. My teammates are trying to get me to calm down. They're, you know, they, they like that kind of stuff. Um, that, that was a difficult game for us. We didn't play particularly well, and they got us, and, and they were really good. I mean, those were the, the two best teams, I hate to say it, were playing for the national championship based on who we played against. I thought that they were easily the two best teams. All right, so in blue chips, I know you read for Ricky Rowe. So take us through that process and then how you ended up playing for – was it Texas, Texas Western? Western? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Texas, Texas Western, Western for, yeah. for Rick Pitino. Yeah. So here, here's the thing. So after the, after the season's over, we do a thing called barnstorming in Kansas. And we travel around the state and we make money playing exhibition games against high school like teachers or high school players. We get paid. I mean, it's, it's pretty good money. 
but I get this call, right? It's, it's from an agent saying, Hey, I'm, you know, I want to represent you, but I can help you get involved in this movie called blue chips. And I'm like, cool, that's great. Let's, let's, well, let's see what we got. And next thing I know, I'm on a, I'm on a first class flight to Hollywood. I get picked up by a limousine. They take me into the hills of Hollywood and I get out of the car. I'm in front of this mansion. I walk into this house and it's William Friedkin and it's Nick Nolte. And it's, Hey Rex, we, we want to talk to you about this part. Here are the lines. Let's let's go over this and let's see if this is something that uh, you'd be uh, good at doing. And so that's basically what it is. I got to hang out with Nick Nolte for a day. Really cool dude. Um, tried to learn my lines the best I could and, and read for it. And and obviously they told me I had no skills and uh, <laughs> I better stick to basketball. Right. So okay. So you don't you don't get that role. But then how does it come about to to get the part that you had in the film? Well, they, they wanted to also have, like, realistic basketball. Like, you know, we played in that game. It was an actual game, and we were actually kicking their butt. Like, we were pretty good. We had Rick Fox. We had Chris Mills. Sam Crawford was a good player from L.A. Uh, we had a really good team. Bobby and Hurley really played? Yeah, uh, yeah, Bobby Hurley actually played for Indiana, uh, which made no sense to me. Mm-hmm. But, yes. um, so, yeah, we, we're, we, they fly us, into, uh, fly us into Indianapolis. We drive about an hour, hour and a half just outside of Indianapolis. We were at this really nice high school. It's got all these practice courts. We play great pickup games. All these guys are getting ready for the draft. So great pickup games. Penny's there, Shaq's there, you know, all these college guys that are that are getting ready for the draft. And then uh, they just basically say, hey, we're going to fly in Rick Pitino. We're going to play a real live game. There's going to be maybe two scenes that are scripted. You know, we're going to script some of the timeouts when they're in the huddle, and they're going to script when Nick Nolte loses it, right? Uh, and kicks the ball into the stands. So, you know, me being the smart guy that I am and trying to get as much film time as I could because I knew this was the end of my acting career, um, I tried to get as close to Nolte as I could because I, I figured I'd get a little more airtime if I did that. <laughs> yeah, it was smart. And then it was, you're, you're the guy who'd always get on the officials, but then the ironic twist is that it was the foul called on you going to the basket. Well, foul on your defender, you're going to the basket, and that's what set Nick Nolte off, and he punted the ball, and he got, and, that, and that's when he got tossed. What what were those pickup games like? Uh, they were great. I mean, like I said, so you got guys that know they're going to be first rounders. You got guys that are maybe potential lottery picks and second rounders, and some guys that don't know. So everyone's trying to still. So you're trying to compete at a high level. You're also trying to make sure you don't get hurt. You know what I mean? Because no one wants to get hurt before the draft. But you're also trying to make sure that you're showing out and showing that you know there's a reason why uh, you're projected to be where you drafted. So very competitive uh, and you get to know guys in, in a little different setting, but at the same time, you know, guys are out to kind of, you know, recognize or, or, or plant their, their footing on, okay, this is who I am and this is what I'm about. So it was a lot of fun. I got to meet some of the actors, got to talk to them, uh, get to know them, what, what acting was like. Um, it's just a very cool experience that, that I had no idea, you know, just a guy from San Jose, California. Next thing I know, I'm going to be in a Hollywood picture. That was that was a really cool experience for me. All right, now I promise. Last one on Blue Chips Rex. Those pickup games, who was in charge of putting the teams together? Were there captains? Who was first pick? Who was last pick? Give me the details. No, you, you know, when you get around guys that know how to play, there was really no captains. We just like, hey, we just picked up guys. All guys were good players. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like we needed to make teams and i'll be honest i don't remember Shaq ever playing you know i don't know if he was 
mm. you know, planning his future. I mean, he's, he's made more money outside of basketball than he did in. So I don't know if he was planning his future or whatever. And, and we didn't see a lot of Penny, but you saw a lot of the guys that were playing in games, right? Like you saw him, you know, Penny didn't want to get hurt either. So maybe that's the reason why he wasn't playing. But, but so you had a lot of guys that knew how to play, had played pickup before, and it, it was competitive. But at the same time, nobody wanted to hurt anybody. Like that was yeah. a big thing. Like we're not risking money right now, but we are going to compete. All right. So competing at the highest level, NBA drafted 16th overall, 93. And this is right after Drazen Petrovic had died. So when did those comparisons start and how'd you handle it? Well, number one, there, there was really no comparison. Drazen was much better than I was. Um, and I think, we, you know, Chuck knew it. Like, you know, Chuck was no dummy. I, I always joke because Chuck has always been very, very good to me. God rest his soul. Always been good to me. But my rookie year, he may have said more. He may have said 30 words to me the entire season. Like, oh. they, they brought in Kevin Edwards. They're really smart. Kevin Edwards was a, a very good, serviceable starter in the NBA. I wasn't ready, uh, to be quite honest. And, and I had to find my niche in the league. You know, I will say this. That was a one entertaining year like you get to play with Derek Coleman great guy obviously you know he, there's a lot of stories that you can tell about DC Kenny Anderson was a great player um Dwayne Shinshius God rest his soul very funny human being Benoit Benjamin Rick Mahorn Jason Williams Chris Morris like it was like a who's who of like personality plus when it comes to the NBA and Chuck had a way of managing all that and actually got us to the to the uh the NBA playoffs. So uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot that year from Chuck, just watching, because I watched a lot, unfortunately, uh, but also just being around completely different guys. I always say, like, and I love Chris Morris, and he's a great guy, but, like, you got to have a lot of guts when you write, trade me, please, on your shoes the day after the trading deadline. Like, you must really be unhappy to do something <laughs> like that. So yeah, so how did you got how did you all react when <laughs> when you saw him do that? Well, he was laughing about it too. It wasn't like it was an inside joke. Like he was just saying, "Hey, you guys really screwed up. I want out of it." We were all laughing about it. It was hilarious. Um, but it was like on one side of the shoe it said "trade me," and you're like, "Okay, he wanted to be traded." And on the other shoe it said "please." <laughs> and I was like, "What? <laughs> Where, what's going on here? Like I'm coming from Kansas, Roy Williams. Do what we ask you to do to like." trade me please um it was hilarious though like the stories from that year um a lot of fun it was a lot of fun all right so give us one you you said there are a bunch of the Derek coleman stories that are that are memorable what's what's one of your favorites well you know i, I don't like to get into you know numbers but you know they had offered them a contract right and it was a pretty big number right at that time it was you know even to this day people were like that's a lot of money well, he didn't like the number that they that they offered him, so we come in and he's passing out shirts with the uh, with the number the number sixty nine on it with the big Ghostbusters like no you know no Ghostbusters <laughs> like over the sixty nine like I'm not taking sixty nine don't ever talk about sixty nine and Derek Coleman again so that was kind of a new one for me trying to get guys to wear no sixty nine shirts. Um, <laughs> It was always about practical jokes. When we got to the hotel, when we were on the road, it was like a mad hustle to make sure you got your room key. Because if you didn't, right, there would be somebody in your room 
or something would happen to your room. It was just craziness. And like one of the stories I always like to tell is like, so, you know, Jason Williams and Rick Mahorn didn't always get along. Okay. And I can go into that a little bit. So basically when Jason played in Philadelphia, okay. uh, Rick was the veteran that played with Charles Barkley, played a lot. And Jason was the young kid. And what people don't know about Jason and, and I love Jason, right. He couldn't remember plays. Okay, like he he wasn't good with plays. He was a great offensive rebounder, right? Great guy, great teammate, but couldn't remember plays. So he finally told me, like, I hate Rick Mahorn. I'm like, why do you hate Rick? He's like, every time after every time after timeout, I'd look I look at Rick and say, Rick, where should I go? And Rick would always tell him the wrong place to go, and then he'd get taken out, and Rick would be laughing when he checked in the game. So. You know. <laughs> Right away, those two, they liked each other, but they didn't like each other, okay? Yeah. So I'm going through my rookie, you know, not playing. So he's like, all right, Rex, we're getting him tonight, all right? So here's what you're going to do. You're going to knock on Rick's door. And Rick was kind of like the, the guy that everyone turned to, kind of a father figure, had won a champ, you know, great guy, you know, that, that everyone, you know, Rick, he's a great guy. Mm-hmm. So he's like, you're going to knock on his door. And, and Rick right away is not going to trust you, Rex. I'm just letting you know. He's not going to trust you. So you got to put on your acting skills and be like, Rick, I just, I really need to talk to you. You know, I'm, I'm just, this is, this is nothing I've ever, so I'm going through this whole spiel. And, and right when Rick opens the door, Jason's waiting for him with a big old bucket of ice water. And so all of a sudden, Rick opens the door. Jason's throwing ice water at him. And we're both running for our lives. And Rick's chasing after us. I mean, that's. That's what the New Jersey Nets team hotel was like uh, my rookie year. <laughs> was there anything ever in your room if you didn't get there fast enough? Uh, yes, yes. But here's the other thing. I was really smart about getting it. But here's the other thing. Jason was so smart. Like, I would steal his key, right? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't know who stole the key. But, like, right when he walked in, like, he'd get another key. And right away he knew, like, I was in the closet. Like, Rex, I know you're in there. You know, the closets, the closet mirrors just a little bit off. Like, you know, he had a, he had a paranoia about him. So um, you, you never knew what was going to happen uh, anytime you went on the road. It was, it was full-on insanity with that crew. How did, how did Mahorn come to get you to get him a Israeli newspaper and that gallon <laughs> of Kool-Aid and the – cigars that he didn't need it was it was just uh rookie hazing and me and pj brown got it the worst i had to get purple saurus rex kool-aid for Derek. i had to get you know these israeli cigars i had to get newspapers like like they were just i think they literally would think of stuff that they could try to get us to do our rookie year and and it was rick mahorn it was Derek coleman uh, you know, those guys that uh, really tried to take it out on us. It was never, you know, no, no bad hazing, but they like to have fun with it. That's for sure. Where did you find the Israeli newspaper? Uh, everywhere. I, I went to, I mean, New Jersey, you never know. You know, you go to every liquor store, every newsstand you can find to get <laughs> one, but you want to make sure you get it done. No question. <laughs> Instead of working on my game, that's what I'm doing with my free time to make sure I it's it, it's wild when you think about as as you mentioned all those names in that in that front line especially rex uh you mentioned that you learned a lot from from chuck daly uh what did you learn 
well, I come from Kansas, right? I, I come from Roy Williams, and it's just, you know, do what we ask you to do. You, you know, he recruits a certain kind of player that's going to listen and, and follow direction. And then you go to New Jersey, and, and, and North, I love Derek Coleman. He wasn't always going to listen to Chuck, you know, but Chuck was a master of getting him back in line, you know? Like, Chuck, you know, Derek would get mad. He'd come off the, off the court, it'd be a timeout. And he'd be bitching and moaning about the play calls and this, that, and the other. And Chuck would just look at him and he'd say, Derek, here you go. Here's the clipboard. What do you want to run? And, of course, Derek wasn't a coach. So Derek would just be like, he'd have to give in to Chuck. Be like, all right, all right, coach, you got it, you got it. You know what I mean? Like, Chuck just knew how to reel him back in. You know, if Derek was having one of those practices where he just wanted to take over, you know, Chuck wouldn't fight it. Chuck Chuck would be like, all right, hey, do, do what you do. You know what I mean? And, and uh you know, it's slowly Derek would see, like, this isn't going to work for me. And so, you know, you talk about Chuck, the job he did. He got us to the playoffs. He gave us a chance against the New York Knicks. And I think it was all the mastery of Chuck Daly. Like, he just knew how to handle egos. He knew what buttons to push. Like, you know, he knew how to even, like, keep me in line. Like, we're playing against the Detroit Pistons, right? And we're playing against Isaiah. And Isaiah is towards the end of his career, but still a great player. We all know Isaiah was a phenomenal player. And I'm talking about Isaiah Thomas. And he lets me go in the game. And, you know, I'm, I'm a rookie. I'm like, this is my shot. And it's just like, boom, 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 pull up, jump shot, Isaiah Thomas, bucket. Boom, boom, boom. You know, ball, go by me, lay up. So I play about three or four minutes. I come off the bench. I, I go sit down. And all I do is I see Chuck looking at me down the bench. And I look at him, and, I, and I'm like, what? And he's like, he's pretty good, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, 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 he's pretty good. Okay. But, and that was just way of saying, hey, hey, young fella you got a lot of things to learn in this league, you know, and, and these guys are really good. You better work on your game. And so, you know, that drove me. That drove me to, to work hard and be better. I was never really going to ever be able to guard Isaiah, but I could at least find a niche in the league. And that was Chuck's way of just telling me, hey, you've got a lot of work in front of you. Well, the next season, Butch Beard comes in, and we had Butch on the on the podcast, and he actually talked a lot to us about the struggles he had trying to reach Derek Coleman and really that group with, with Kenny Anderson and all, but, but um, Derek Coleman sort of specifically, um, what was that transition like? Well, I just don't think that, you know, it's a really, I like Butch, Butch was, Butch was a good coach and stepped in. I mean, he was a successful coach at Howard and then he got a shot to follow. It's like someone trying to follow John Wooden, you know, they still aren't happy at UCLA, right. With, with the coaches that have come after John Mm -hmm. Wooden, it's like trying to Mm -hmm. replace, Dean Smith at North Carolina, you know, Coach Wood, uh, Coach Guthridge did a, a pretty good job, but not quite at the same level until Roy Williams at North Carolina. That's what Butch had to deal with replacing Chuck because Chuck was a master psychologist. He knew how to – he always talked about, I, 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 I got to make sure the, the takeoff is good. I got to make sure the landing is good. Well, he was a master at that stuff, like knew exact – and had already dealt with the Dennis Rodman, the Rick Mahorns, you know, the Isaiah Thomases, the Joe Dumars, the Bill Lambeers. So looking at, at New Jersey, it was like, this is easy. I, I, you know, we're not going to win a championship, but I know how I can be successful with this team. So, you know, Butch stepping into a position where he's got to come in after Chuck. And, and Derek, you know, Derek is going to test you, you know, and he's a great player. And, and great players usually do that. They usually are going to test their coach. So Butch, no question, had his hands full uh, and, and, and did as good a job as, as you can in that type of situation. So when you get traded to Philly the next year, how'd you find out? 
So it's funny, like uh, it was the third year in the league and, and I wasn't playing a whole lot and I just kind of went in and you also got to be careful what you wish for. Okay. Because I went in and I saw Willis Reed and I said, Hey man, I'm not playing. Is there any way you can get me out of here, trade me and, and, and give me a chance where I have a chance to play somewhere else. And, uh, and, and not in such nice terms like this, you know, I was a little hothead and literally like 48 hours later, I'm in Boston, and it's the most time I ever spent with my teammates. Like, literally, they all came to my room. We all hung out. We were telling jokes and joking because I didn't go out a whole lot when I was a player in the NBA. And that was, like, the most time I spent with a lot of my teammates was the night before I had to get on the plane and fly to Philadelphia. But that's how I found out. They said, yeah, you've been traded. You're going with D.C. and Sean. You're going to be on a plane tomorrow. D.C.'s not going. (laughs) You know, he'll go at a later date. You know, but but you guys need to go, you know, pass your physical. And uh, the next day I was on a flight from Boston to Philly and, and uh, go to go from really bad to worse because that right. Philly team was a nightmare, you know, and great guys, like great guys again. I mean, I haven't met a bad guy in the NBA. Like you're going to have some tough guys and tough backgrounds. But, but uh, you know, I think we had we had won shooting. Maybe we won 16, 17 games, if, if I'm not – and we went we won four out of our last eight. You know, we, we set the record at that time for most um, additions or a roster moves in a season. It was it – was, I was part of an – I won't talk about the player that was involved in it, but I was part of an intervention because one of our players was, was dealing with stuff off the court. Like, I wasn't ready for that stuff, man. That was, like, wild. Oh, that is, that's crazy. How did you guys, how did you handle that before, before you, I mean, you, without saying the name, but, but how did you handle that as a team and you individually? I, I, I didn't know. That's, that's the crazy thing about it. I didn't know we were having, I thought we were going downstairs for, you know, for your game day, you know, meeting, you know, and, and next thing I know oh, is, geez. uh, there's a circle and then there's one chair in the middle. And I'm like, first of all, I've been here all of two weeks. Why am I here? You know, but, but, you know, the thing I'll say about John Lucas is he genuinely cares about guys. And I think he almost looked for guys that needed help. You know what I mean? Um, yes. Which, which uh, I think there's a, there's a place in his heart for that stuff. And so it was, it's really kind of neat for a guy that, like I said, coming from Kansas, um, didn't quite know what to expect. This was like a total different like world for me. Um, but, uh, still kind of cool, but still kind of crazy. All right. So I have a question about that 96 year, um, because Noah and I both Southeastern PA kids, um, who Kobe Bryant's there in district one in 96. And I remember John Lucas coming to the palestra when Noah and I were both at the game district semifinals, Kobe's playing Rip Hamilton, but there were always stories locally about Kobe going with John Lucas going and playing Stackhouse one and one on one, and and the rumor always was Kobe was killing Stackhouse one on one. Stackhouse has denied this stuff. So for someone that was on that team in '96, what what can you tell me about Kobe coming to play against against Jerry Stackhouse yeah. and against you guys? The the only so I got there you know kind of middle of the year, so I might have I, I definitely missed that because they never played when I was there. So I can I can verify that in terms of Jerry's, you know, Jerry's version of it. I will say this, uh, Kobe did come to practices or he would come afterwards and come work out at St. Joe's because 
me not knowing who Kobe was, like, you know, once again, I, I didn't follow high school basketball. I was an NBA player. I wasn't into that. I'm sitting there. I'm, 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 I'm leaving to go uh, home. I'm, I'm kind of straightening it up in the locker room, and, and Kobe, sure enough, walks in. And I'm, like, just making conversation with this kid. I'm like, hey, you know, uh, what you doing here? He's like, yeah, I'm going to go work out. And I'm like, oh, you're a pretty good player? Like, this guy had to be looking at me like, what, what are you, some kind of idiot or something? Because, you know, and then I'm like, well, you know, what schools you're looking at? He's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm talking to Kansas. I'm talking to Carolina. He's like, but there's one other thing I'm thinking about. And I'm like, oh, okay. I was like, well, hey, you know, Dean Smith was a great coach for Michael Jordan. You know, you should think about Carolina. Obviously, Coach Williams is my coach, great coach. You should think about those schools, trying to, trying to help out my guy. Uh, you know, next, next thing you know, next preseason game, this guy's freaking like, yelling over to his point guard, Nick Van Exel, like, hey, you know, I'm guarding. I'm like, I got a mouse over here. I got a mouse. I'm like, man, that's, that's a little disrespectful. I tried to help you, my man, and, and, and you're calling mouse in the house on me. So, obviously, he had to be thinking to himself, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. He's pretty well, good. well, not 96 in, in Philly is remembered – because that's when Allen Iverson was drafted and Johnny Davis is the head coach. You've told me the story about Iverson on the track and running backwards and beating everybody in the mile. What, what else, what else, what stands out about day to day with Iverson? Well, the, I, I, you know, when Larry came in, it was a, a big adjustment because, you know, Larry comes from the whole Carolina family and we play the game the right way and this, that, and the other. And, and his whole, goal at first was to make Allen a point guard you know and like I said he did he we did the mile run kind of like that's what Carolina did we did it he ran backwards for the first two laps in the sixth lane like that's what kind of athlete Allen and laughing at us and I'm like you know I'm fighting for a job I'm trying to become you know be a starter be a rotation guy this guy's laughing at me running backwards and wins by 200 yards the other thing I remember with that adjustment to Larry was Larry was trying to make him a point guard and Allen wanted nothing to do with that. Nothing. We're, we're playing the bulls that night at Carolina. After our training camp, we had a game against the bulls and the first 10 minutes of, you know, shoot around when you, you know, guys are warming up, guys are shooting around. Allen refused to shoot. He kept passing the ball to guys that were not expecting that. Just a, just picture Allen dribbling around the court, passing the guys that weren't looking for the pass. And right when it hit him, he said, I'm Muggsy Bogues. Like, like I'm Muggsy Bogues. Like, he kept saying he's Muggsy Bogues. Cause he, and, and, and he was basically telling Larry, you did not draft a point guard. You drafted Allen Iverson, and I am a scorer. And uh, I think eventually Larry got, got the message, and that's when they brought in Eric Snow. They played Allen at the two, and, uh, you know, they went to a, an NBA Finals. But now, Allen was a great guy, you know, like, uh, it was wild uh, at times. Like I, I would walk into the wives lounge 30 minutes before the game. He would have half of his hair braided, the other half in full on, you know, Dr. J Afro with his, with his Philadelphia Sixers shirt, uh, shorts on, and then a wife beater and fatigues on up top, <laughs> eating, eating a full plate of spaghetti and meatballs, you know, and 30 like, minutes. Yeah. You know, th- like what, Alan? Like you gotta go, and he just looked at me like, "Yeah, tell LB I'll be there in like five minutes." I'm like, "All right," and then he'd go out there and and he'd give you thirty. You know, he'd give you thirty. What was the what was the craziest thing you ever saw him do on the court? 
The craziest thing? Um, I mean, I was, mean just was, impressive, I guess. I'm yeah, saying. the jaw-dropping stuff. Well, he had an unbelievable knack of, of like, he would, he would bait you into a pass, right? Like, you think the guy is open, and he just kind of, like, just baiting you, like, playing, like, a cat-and-mouse game with you. Whether Even if he was getting screened, like, he could bait you into pass and read it and go, and he would, he would tip it to himself and then start his dribble, and you could never catch him. Like, um, he was an unbelievable, like, unbelievable athlete, like, could run forever, could be out all night long, like, partying with his mother. Like, that, that's the whole thing people understand. Like, like, they partied hard, and then he'd bring it the next day of games. Like, it didn't always happen in practice. I'm not going to lie to you. You know what I mean? But, like, guys loved him. They loved going to war with him. And he, you know, he had a great, like, knack of – of making you laugh, you know, and, and really talented. He was a great artist. People don't, I don't know if people know that he could, he could draw and, and he'd make on the planes, he'd make characters of guys, like making fun of them. Like he, he's, you know, it, it's always good, um, you know, just to be around a guy like that. And obviously a great player as well. Well, you actually outscored him in a game in, in uh, January of, of 97, the, the overtime win over the Celtics, you had 27 points, 11 assists, nine boards. Iverson had 26 that night. Stackhouse had, had 38. What, what's your uh, recollection of that game? Well, you know, the best thing about it was, you know, people always think that Al, you know, Al just wanted to score. Like, no, he wanted to win desperately. Like, he wanted to win. He had a lot of things he wanted to prove. And no one was happier for me than Allen was. You know what I mean? Like, like pure mm. joy and happiness for me that yes, we won, but also like happy for Rex. You know what I mean? I know Rex has gone through stuff. He's trying to find his niche in the league. Um, you know, that's the great thing about Allen that people don't talk about enough. Like, yeah, you can, the whole practice thing, this, that, and the other. The bottom line is the guy loved to win, you know, and, and uh, went through a lot of things, maybe didn't have the, the most, you know, discipline in the world. But when it comes to going to war and when it came to game time, he was going to every time give you everything that he got. And that was a great night for me. And I don't think anyone was happier than me on that team than Allen was. Like, he was genuinely happy that I had success that night. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. When, uh, yeah. when you get to Miami earlier, we talked about the border war with Kansas and Mizzou when you were in college. How does that compare to three straight Knicks Heat playoff series? It was it was the most intense. Like training camps were intense. Like to go into the playoffs, like knowing everything that the Knicks did, like the attention, the detail, the physicality. I just remember the first regular season game. Like I was sitting, I was, I just came on the team. We're playing the Knicks, and like I had never experienced that. Even in the the playoff series that I was a part of with the New Jersey Nets and the Knicks, like it was nowhere close to that in a regular season game. There was pure hatred, right, between the two organizations because, you know, Pat leaving New York at midnight or whatever to take right. the Miami job. But also the players love for Pat, but also the Knicks players loving him but wanting to kill him at the same time. You know what I mean? You had brothers on opposite benches with Stan and Jeff. Mm -hmm. um, it was – you had rivalries with Patrick and Alonzo coming from Georgetown. You, you know, you had – the New York Knicks guards of Charlie Ward and Chris Childs 
against Tim Hardaway. You know, is it was it you know three good point guards or one great point guard? So those those were like just intense, intense, crazy games to be a part of. That you know, unfortunately for us, it it, it kind of eventually broke up our team because we we couldn't get over the top. You know, after that first year, before I got there, they got the Knicks right. But after that, when they ran into the Bulls, after that, like the Knicks got us, and they got us in tough, tough games that were just like demoralizing for the organization and all the players, you know. So, uh, but it was, it was. I can't believe there's not a, you know, uh, thirty for thirty on those games because those are phenomenal things to be a part of. Like you had so many Nick fans from, you know, living in South Florida. The environment uh, was was phenomenal all of those games regular season and the playoffs right and you know one of the first scenes in if that 30 for 30 is ever made would be the what everybody remembers about the lj zoe fight and jeff van gundy hanging on to the leg what was what was the locker room like after that one well before it like coach riley gave one of the greatest like pre-game speeches i had ever heard he because he would always talk about his laker days he talked about some of his Nick days, and he made our guys feel like Kareem, Magic, worthy. He made Alonzo, Timmy, and Jamal feel like you're my Kareem, Magic, and worthy. And like mm. our guys, like he would get you to the point where like you wanted to kill for the man. You really did. And so the other thing that was crazy about it was Alonzo had the whole mask thing going. And he was so fired up. He's like, I'm not wearing the mask tonight. I'm leaving it all on the floor. And we're like, Zoe, you're crazy. You're going to get hit. And he's like, no, nah, not tonight. I'm leaving it all on the floor. And sure enough, uh, he got nicked, right, by, by LJ. Uh, the fight ensued. You see Coach Van Gundy on the ground holding onto his legs. And I'll, and I'll never forget this, you know. Um, I always talk about this when I talk about those games because Pat knew right when the fight happened, like, this is bad for us, right? This is bad for us. Like, and they're just walking off the court. And I never forget Pat looked at Zoe and I love Zoe. Like Zoe's like the ultimate warrior. He looked at Zoe and he's like, do you understand what you just did? And Zoe just kind of looked at him like, you know, like I felt bad because he felt like he had let Pat and the organization down. You know, and I was like, it was it's kind of emotional. You know what I mean? Because those yeah. series were so intense. But uh, I just remember that. I was like, wow, this is crazy. The the year before the year before that game, uh, in that rivalry, was when the Knicks players got suspended and the Heat went on to win game six and game seven. Um, yep. what, what had always been talked about, that Pat Riley really wanted to start a brawl for that reason. Uh, <laughs> how much truth was there to that? Well, I actually wasn't there. I, I went there later. Yeah, yeah. I know you hadn't gotten there yet. Yeah. I know you hadn't gotten there yeah. yet. I'm just curious, yeah. like, because obviously knowing those guys and being a part of everything that ensued, I was just curious at how much you knew from that period. Yeah, he, he – I'll say this. Coach Riley never talked about fighting. I think that one time it got close to that in a practice, and he and he just stopped it. And, and I should have learned a great lesson from that. He's like, that's one thing we're never going to do. Because I had seen that in Jersey. I'd seen guys fight in Jersey. Uh, Pat uh, is, is physical and has uh, not maniacal, but like how driven he was. There was a line with him. I mean, there were certain things we didn't do. We didn't we didn't pick guys up when they hit the floor. 
you know, he always talked about, I always said this, my players, when I coached would always laugh when I said this, I said, Hey, we show respect by showing no respect on the floor. You know, there was, there was some truth to that stuff, you know what I mean? But there was also a line and coach Riley never crossed that. He didn't want to get physical. And it's so funny. The, the like most mild mannered guy, like PJ's a, a, a great friend. You know what I mean? To see PJ flip Charlie Ward was so out of character. When I saw that, I was just shocked. I was actually talking to my agent who represented PJ as well. And we were all in shock that PJ, uh, you know, flipped them. He just flipped them really nice and easy. <laughs> and that's how the brawl started. It just wouldn't happen now. And it's, it's almost, but it's almost sad. You know what I mean? Like, um, in some ways, that's what made those series so great and made those storylines so great. Sure. You know, and, and uh, you know, I, I get it. I, I do get it. The NBA had to protect the fans and, you know, obviously the malice at the palace and that went beyond. But um, that's what made those series. Like you talk about those the old Indiana Pacers, New York Knicks series. You talk mm-hmm. about the Detroit bad boys. You talk about the physicality of our teams in Miami, you know, like – that's it also made it a lot of fun i hate to say it but it did make it a lot of fun oh yeah sure i'm sure yeah i'm sure it gave you media guys some things to talk about (laughs) (laughs) uh rex some quick hits for you as a college head coach and also an assist as an assistant coach what do you learn as a young head coach in college at fau and at san francisco that can apply to a higher level assistant coaching job well, as a head coach, you understand that seat. You understand what, what uh, coaches are going through. I'll say this. I, I wish I would have worked for Stan Van Gundy uh, in Detroit or coached in the G League before I got my first college head coaching job because it made me so much better. Working for him and his attention to detail, uh, his, his level of his, just, his knowledge and, and how to put a team together how to put together a system that that's going to give his team the best chance of winning both in the offensive and defensive side. I wish it was reversed because I would have been a much better head coach at San Francisco. There's things that I just picked up in those two years from, from Stan working for him. But I do think as a college head coach, there, there are certain things that, that, uh, you know, I was able to help Stan. I was able to, to help our players, just being able to sit in that seat and having that experience and having that pressure, right. Of, of understanding what a head coach goes through, even if it's at a higher level in the NBA. I want to follow on that with your assistant coaches in the league. So just, just a few of your assistant coaches in the league, Rick Carlisle, Ron Adams, Tom Thibodeau, Eric Spolstra. And you've already mentioned, you already mentioned Stan Van Gundy at the time. Who did you recognize as he's the best where he is right now? Wow. Um, I mean, Tom Thibodeau, when we were in Philly, I mean, think about this. I think we won 17, 18 games. His attention to detail as well. Like, I just remember, you know, his board when it was his scout and how good he was and how detailed he was uh, in his presentation to the team. So I knew that this guy is going to be a head coach. Uh, I knew Ron Adams, whoever played for Ron was going to love him. Like we won 18 games and he was always upbeat, always uh, trying to motivate, always encouraging and making sure you, you knew that he cared about you. You knew Ron was going to have great success, uh, you know, and, and, 
And it was like really cool for me to see. I was actually at San Francisco and Golden State was starting to make their runs. Mm-hmm. To see Ron, to a guy that went from winning 18 games in Philadelphia to being a world champion, that was really cool. You know, Rick Carlisle was like a third, really the fourth assistant when I was in New Jersey. So he worked with me a lot. And you could tell he knew how to carve a niche or help players carve a niche in the league. And, and he, was, he had a big impact on me, even though only it was with them for one year. Uh, Spo. I mean, Eric Spolster was a video, he was a video coordinator, you know, when I was in Miami and, and I used to tease him because he was like, you know, the, the Oregon state player of the year. And I used to give him a hard time. Like I wasn't even the player of the year in my city. You know, how, how much better did I get compared to you? <laughs> um, but saying all that, like, it's funny, like Eric Spolstra in a lot of ways is like the, the thing you look for if you're getting into the, the business in the NBA, like he was young, he was a good player. He could get on the floor. He was detailed. Like, you know, I, I never knew he was going to be a, you know, a future hall of famer and a world championship coach, but you knew he had all those things, you know what I mean? And, and, and in an organization like the heat, um, he was going to have great success. I just never thought that he'd be coaching LeBron and D Wade and having this, but but also he had all those things. So now as you look at the video coordinators that are coming in the NBA, you know, they're, they're young, they're, they're, you know, active, they can get on the court. They have to be detailed. They're, 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 you know, grinders that work extremely hard. I mean, I think Eric Spolster was like the picture boy for what, you know, a guy getting into the league, getting their shot and being a video coordinator should look like. You got hired with Grand Rapids in the G League at the same time as, as an old friend and, and former colleague of mine, John Phelps uh, was, yeah. was hired as, as, <laughs> as PM. He, John was a, was a production assistant at ESPN, went to law school. Next thing you know, he, he ends up as GM of a, a G League team. I'm curious, what is, the, what is the most frustrating part about coaching in the G League and what's the best part? I don't know what was frustrating. Like we had great players. John was great to work for. He was, it was his first job, you know, in the G league as a, as a GM, it was my first job. So we could kind of make some mistakes together. Um, He didn't make very many. He was very detailed and organized. And I I threw out some ideas on players where, where, you know, quite honestly, um, I should have been fired for like, Hey, we should get this guy. We should get that guy. And then finally I got to the point where I said, John, you got it. Like you get the players. I'm going to coach them. We're good. You know what I mean? Um, but there was, there was no, the bus rides were hard. Right. But uh, the travel times could be difficult. We played Santa Cruz on a Friday night. We played LA at uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, the next day. Like those things are frustrating, but no, there's some, yeah, there's some really good players in the – I got to coach Jordan Crawford. He's really good. Kevin Murphy, really good. Ray McCallum, really good. Lorenzo Brown, guys that got back to the league, you know, or making a lot of money. I mean, that was a lot of fun. John John was great to work for and work with. Um, you know, I, I, I loved my experience in the G League. It was – I learned a lot. There's some great coaches in that league that are still young, and you're going to see, you know, coaching NBA teams at some point. I know your son Gunner was featured in USA Today when he was just a seventh grader, and now at, at last check was playing with the former Jayhawk Steve Woodbury's son um, in high school. I know Gunner's an, an up and coming player. As someone with a three year old who I think has a really bright future, uh, how do you balance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but how do you balance 
especially as competitive as you've always been, how do you balance the coaching aspect and the father aspect? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, he wants to be really good and he's got a chance to be pretty darn good, I think. But, you know, you can, you, even though I played seven years in the NBA and I played in the final four, I'm still dad. And I still don't know what the hell I'm talking about to him. So, so that's, what, that's the first thing, you know, um, but you know, you just got to be there for him. I, I think you, I try to help him whenever I can. We work out a lot together. He enjoys that. But at the same time, I'm going to tell him the truth on things. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is you got to have it internally. You know, I've got five kids. I've had, you know, I got, I got three kids that have played now, you know, at, at some level, um, four kids have played high school basketball. They're all different. You love them all the same, but he internally has some drive to him. That's going to give him a chance if he can put on some weight. I mean, he's, he's, he's 5'11", he's about 135 pounds soaking wet. So hopefully we can put some weight on him. So maybe I just need to buy a whole bunch of hamburgers <laughs> and, and, and put some weight on that boy. So as, as, we, as we record this, everyone's in quarantine. And we always say that folks can listen to these interviews whenever they want and not know the exact time. But for this question, how are you as a you know, an assistant coach at a, at a major college basketball program, how are you guys all handling things moving forward? It's been a challenge. You know, our guys are, are studying things online. We have to check on them. We, we actually had a meeting today. Uh, on, I don't know if it was on Zoom or Google Chat where we can see each other's face and we can kind of watch some tape together. Uh, a lot of our guys, we got a lot of guys from New York, so that's where it's getting hit the hardest. So they're having a tough time even just getting out of the house and, and staying in some semblance of shape. So it's hard. It's been a challenge. You know, I've really uh, challenged myself to try to make myself better as a basketball mind and, and listen to more clinics, watch more clinics, and, and try to get better that way. But it's, uh, this is a weird time. You know, it's, it's a weird time to be going through this. We, we, we want to be in the gym with our guys, helping our guys achieve their goals. And, and right now, this, uh, this virus is not letting us do it. Hopefully, we can get back to it real soon. All right, so we always close with the rejecting the screen question since the podcast is called Rejecting the Screen. And we all know that all the players used to have the conversation in the back of the bus, game on the line, who gets the basketball? And the rule was always, all right, who are you going to pick? It can't be Jordan. So for you, any, te- <laughs> it can't, any teammate of yours, and we'll, oh, and we'll put this caveat on, it can't be Iverson to reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket. Well, it's easy for me. It's Tim Hardaway. Like Tim Hardaway was at that time probably the third or fourth best clutch. I thought clutch performer. We called him Biggie Smalls for a reason. Like every big shot, we wanted him to take it. And I might actually take him over Allen uh, in a lot of ways. Like he was a phenomenal, phenomenal go-to player in clutch moments because he he had an unbelievable confidence and he could also brush it brush it off. If, if it didn't go his way. And you got to have that to be a great clutch time performer. And that's exactly what Tim Hardaway was. All right. So you can follow Rex on Twitter at coach Rex Walters and gives you another reason to root for Wake Forest as well. Rex, I always do enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much for the time and best of health. Ah, appreciate it guys. Thanks for having me. It is kind of funny. Sometimes the overlap of guests that we have like with Rex Walters, like we had Butch Beard on and Butch Beard was talking about Derek Coleman and not being able to get through to DC. And then Rex was on that team and then traded with Derek Coleman 
although DC wasn't on that plane, as he said, but everybody else was was going to Philadelphia. But some of those stories are great. That that Derek Coleman story, when he when he turned down the sixty nine million and he handed out T shirts. <laughs> It's at 69 and they had the, the Ghostbusters no through it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like that. And, and as soon as he said that and the, the Chris Morris trade me, please. I remember, I remember yeah. hearing about that, not at the time, but, but since uh, on the sneakers, it made me think we all went bananas when Anthony Davis wore the, that's all folks t-shirt. Yes, to, his, to, yes. to his to his final game with the Pelicans, yes. and that was handled just so poorly. But that's what that's what it made me think of. It's you know it's weird to look back at that time, and I, I we all get wistful. Those of us who who got a chance to see what was going on in the '90s in the NBA, and we think about these colorful personalities. We talk about. I mean, Rex talked about it. Just this idea that. We don't get to see it anymore. We don't get to see some of these fights and the rivalries and the intensity. Uh, but also you think about the charisma from some of these guys. But I also wonder if it's we didn't get a chance to get this up close and personal with players. So it's like the stories that came out at that time, everyone knew them. You know, it's weird. Mm-hmm. There are these like little stories about a specific game or specific moment. And everybody knew about it because there just weren't that many because there wasn't the social media aspect and the information just wasn't as prevalent. And I wonder sometimes if you, instead of every time, you know, as we joke about that LeBron sneezes, it becomes a bleacher report update that I'm getting on my phone. If instead of that, or, or LeBron says taco Tuesday again, what do we think? Right. Like, you know, and there's a poll. If instead of that, if every once in a while, this stuff was just, we didn't know. And then some of the, the good stuff came out. I wonder how we would, be thinking about today's era in relation. So I don't know. It's interesting that he took us back there, but I, I love his entire, the, the retrospective look at his career. It was pretty unbelievable. I mean, here was a guy that Northwestern transfers to Kansas. And during that transfer year, just to say how differently times were, and maybe actually it's, it still applies, but just an interesting thing for him. Kansas plays in the national championship that year. It's the Grand Hill, the Bobby Hurley to Grand Hill alley-oop game, you know, mm-hmm that, that mm-hmm. famous dunk Rex had to pay his own way to go to the final four. He was a transfer at right. that time and to go see Kansas play. He's got to pay his own way to get out there. He has experienced some amazing things and was a phenomenal basketball player. Yeah. And I guess looking back on the only thing I, I regret not asking him more about was that Jason Kidd game when, when Cal beat, when, uh, when Kansas beat Cal in the 93 tournament and yes. Rex. So Rex went eight for nine four five from three he had 24 he had 24 <laughs> points and they won 93 76 there's a three-point game at half and they ended up winning 93 76 and, and jason kidd had jason kidd turned it over four times he had 13 points 10 assists four steals six of 12 lamont murray though had 23 but he only went nine of 22 from the floor and they and and as he said it's so great just hearing him still like everyone was talking about jason kidd during that broadcast we whooped them Whooped them. Yes, yes, yes. And Cal had just been come off had come off the the Duke upset. Cal mm-hmm. had beaten Duke in that in that tournament. Jason Kidd beats Bobby Hurley. It's the right. Sports Illustrated cover. All this and Rex says we're shattering those those Final Four dreams for you. And I did watch a the open for the Final Four 
where some of the pregame show for the final four in 93. And I think I misspoke before when I said title game against Carolina, but it was the final four against Carolina. And I think it was Pat O'Brien because they played in the Superdome and he, in New Orleans and he's wearing 23. And that's where Jordan wearing number 23 took his shot to beat Georgetown. And also Keith Smart was wearing 23 for Indiana. So it was like, you know, the next 23 in the Superdome. And it was Rex Walters. And he, and he said that he was you know fully aware of all of this. He was exuding confidence at a, at a level that you need in order to get to the NBA. And it's funny you mentioned that that number thing because another thing we didn't ask him, Rex Walters wore number three for the Miami Heat before Dwayne Wade retired. Was he the last one to wear three before Wade? No That's way. That's a great I don't question. So. I, it was a couple of years before, so I, I'm right. sure someone else had that number in the meantime. Why don't you text him after this and ask him? He would know for sure. You can follow Adam on Twitter at NaismithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V, at rejecting underscore the underscore screen on Instagram. We appreciate all the love the podcast is getting. So get on board now so that you can tell your friends, yeah, I've been, I've been on those guys for a while now. And yeah. if you would, aside from subscribing and downloading, which you're already doing, just leave a rating and review. It's so easy to do on iTunes. Just click five stars and write a quick review. Like, give Adam parenting advice. That's mm. cool. Yeah, I could That's use cool. it. I could Skyler use it. is just a few days old, and the household is, as you'd expect, being now a household of six. <laughs> you sure you don't <laughs> want to just keep sitting there and do more of the podcast? We could make this three hours. Yeah, I'm trying to get there. We could. Actually, I was hoping you would look up some information on basketball <laughs> reference. We could go back and forth a little bit. Yeah, it's painful just hearing you say six. Like that's, <laughs> it's different yeah. than saying four kids he's a household of six also check out chad ford's nba big board the newest podcast on the locked on podcast network all things nba draft with the one and only chad ford also locked on nba five days a week hollinger and duncan every monday doing all sorts of themes on that program locked on fantasy hoops josh lloyd and your team every day on the locked on podcast network adam thanks pal You are the best.